So Psalm 13 says this. To the choir master, a psalm of David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a think about this question of how we talk ourselves down from our anxiety. We're going to think a little bit about that psalm in a part of the sermon. But before we do, (coughs) let me just mention, there's going to be an opportunity to ask questions in light of the things we've been thinking about this morning. So that all happens and takes place in the live chat area. And I'll explain that when we get to it. But I do want you to know the questions are there, uh, the question times there for you to ask questions. So be aware of that and feel free to ask any questions in light of the things we've been thinking about. Um, another thing to mention is there is a sermon outline in the description box. That's there for your use. So you can download that and see um, just how things break up a little bit. But first, finally, we're going to ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your remarkable and mighty acts. How you've demonstrated throughout redemptive history that the promises you make, you keep. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not doubt, but rather we would be confident and trust in you. We would believe that you will say what you will you will do what you have said you will as we reflect on all these things might it give us a means by which we can control our anxiety knowing full well we live in a world where anxiety is a reality we pray lord that we would best manage that using the gifts that you have given us amen Well, if you visit your GP and present with anxiety, there's a good chance you will be introduced to something known as cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT. Now, just before we start, I want to talk a little bit about this, but I do want to present you with the caveat that I'm no expert on this. Um, This is something we looked at in passing uh, Bible College. It's something I've talked to Caroline about. Obviously, it's something she uses at work. Um, But I'm not the expert here. Okay, so uh, I just worth bearing that in mind. But I do want to talk a little bit about it. 
Now the idea is you use the CBT, the Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, to talk yourself down from your anxiety. CBT relates three aspects together. They are think, feel, behave. Think, feel, behave. And how we think affects how we feel which causes us to behave in a particular way. Now, if we could assume that our thinking is practically perfect in every way, then naturally this would lead to optimum feelings and appropriate behavior. But the assumption is our thinking isn't perfect. Far from it, it's broken. So this means that wrong thinking leads to bad feelings, which leads to inappropriate behaviour. That further leads to more bad thinking. And as you begin to see, the cycle perpetuates. But CBT has been designed to be used particularly in irrational anxiety. So that takes what we've talked about then, but blows it up even more. So that's when thoughts have become catastrophic. Things are as bad as they could possibly be. When thoughts become global, you know, this bad thinking affects everything. When your thoughts become eternal, this feeling is never going to end. It's never going to go away. They're irresistible. There's no possibility that these will change. And they can become internal. This is wholly the thinker's responsibility. Now, as we can see, if things have got to this stage, then without challenging the thoughts, this way of thinking is going to lead to despair. So our thinking or cognition needs correcting. It needs to be challenged so we can think rightly. And this is where cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT comes in. Now, it may be you're thinking this is all well and good, but isn't this a secular solution for a secular world? Aren't we, as Christians, meant to be taking full advantage of our biblical framework and how we can use that to manage our anxiety? Well, this raises the question, what is CBT? Is CBT an invention or is it an observation? And who was it that first came up with CBT? Well, to explore these questions, let's go right back to the beginning. Back to when a bit of CBT might have been a bit useful. We find ourselves with Adam and Eve. 
They've been told if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. At which point, the serpent speaks to Eve. What did Eve think? Did God really say, you will surely die? Is God good? And how did this questioning make Eve feel? Well, she had a craving to taste the fruit, the desire to be like God. Well, how did then Eve behave? She eats some fruit and she takes some and gives some to Adam. What Eve should have done is right at the beginning challenge her wrong thinking about God. If she'd reminded herself of how God had created the world and done so out of nothing by speaking his word and therefore concluded that what God says happens therefore realised that when God said you will surely die she would know that it really would happen then she would have known that the serpent was part of the creation and therefore was not in a position to question the word of the uncreated creator. Had she challenged her thinking, she may well have felt very different, humble, ashamed, grateful, relieved. This would have led her to behave in a particular way, chasing the serpent out of the garden and turning away from the tree. But that wasn't to be. Everyone who comes after Eve follows in Eve's steps. In one sense, every episode is remarkably similar. But the one that's most striking, one that sees the exact same motif arise yet again, is found when Jesus walks among his own people. When Jesus entered the world, he revealed he was the Son of God. We can do the exercise again. What did the Jewish leaders think? That Jesus was not Son of God. But that Jesus was a self-serving serving blasphemer. So what did the Jewish leaders feel? An exuberance of zeal and jealousy. They wanted the kingdom for themselves. So how did the Jewish leaders behave? They crucified Jesus. 
once again, they had the opportunity to challenge their thinking. It's something that Jesus encouraged them to do. He pointed to the remarkable acts that he'd done and how they all pointed to the fact that he was the one who was promised, sent by God to reverse the effects of the fall and was to be appointed God's king. But they refused to challenge their thinking. Well, another question to ask is, can we find anywhere in the Bible where we see the thinking of despair challenged? Or this wrong thinking put in its place? Well, a good place to go is to the book of Psalms. And as we've already said, we've picked out Psalm 13. It's an example of this happening. And it's nice and short as well, so it means we can see the full scope of the thought developing. So if you have a look at Psalm 13, notice in Psalms uh, verses 1 to 4, you get the idea, you get what David thinks and what David feels. So David thinks that God has left him and feels that he'll be forgotten by God forever. David feels sorrowful because of his isolation from God. He also, David feels threatened because his enemies have the better of him. David thinks his life is in the hands of his enemies. He feels his enemies will kill him. But then it is in verse 5 and 6 that we see David challenges this thinking. David remembers that God is to be trusted. The mighty acts he has done in the past prove him to be faithful. The promises he has made, David assures himself that God will not allow his enemies to get the better of him. David changes the way he thinks about God. And as a result, he feels like rejoicing in God and in his salvation. And he behaves with singing to the Lord. Now hopefully we can begin to see CBT isn't just for the secular world. And reality it isn't something that's invented but rather it's an observation of how we've behaved ever since the very first humans walked the earth. And actually we've all done this to some extent. We were taught it by our parents to varying degrees. We practiced it as children. And like anything, some of us are better than others. But ultimately, we can get better at this. So think back to primary school. 
And I want to take you all the way back to your very first spelling test. And it's that anxiety of getting 10 out of 10. And the feeling that the world will end if you don't get 10 out of 10. But you know the first time when you get 8 out of 10, there's a sudden realisation the world didn't implode, the world's still turning, and all is well. So when the next spelling test arrives, you're not quite so anxious. Until that is, you get your first speaking part in the school nativity. Each new experience as a child helps us to learn to challenge the way we think. And each experience is preparing us for when we're older. Now you may well be laughing and this may well all seem trivial now, but that's because you've learned to manage your anxiety. At the time it was big, but now it seems trivial. Your GCSEs, your A-levels... Leaving home, whether to go to university or to get your first job. Your first job interview, your driving test. The first time you realised you'd gone into your overdraft. You have come a long way from that first spelling test. And you have, all this time, been working on your anxiety. And it's something that we still are working on. So now let me give an example. So I'm going to go for that Sunday feeling, that Sunday feeling you get before another week at work. I think this is fairly universal experience of anxiety, but if this isn't your difficulty, and obviously if we're struggling with other areas of anxiety hopefully as you see it demonstrated you'll be able to apply the same technique that we're using here to different applications wherever you might need it so let me set the scene it's Sunday night and tomorrow I'm back at work for five days I have a good idea of what I have scheduled in but I also know there inevitably will be a few surprises when I get into the office. There are deadlines due. There are not enough hours in the day. There's animosity between colleagues. Some are not pulling their weight. Others, including me, are having to carry those colleagues. I've had a good weekend, but I don't feel rested. It wasn't long enough. So that's the scenario. So first of all, I want to run through what an unchallenged pattern of thinking might lead to. And remember those, I'm going to sort of um, squeezing as I go through this, those different catastrophic sort of despairing ways of thinking. So how do I think? Well, I don't want to go to work. Once tomorrow comes, I won't get another break until Saturday. 
And that, of course, depends on me getting on top of the deadlines. If I don't get on top of the deadlines, then do I even get a break while I have to work at the weekend? You start to begin to see that this thinking is global. It's affecting everything. I'm not going to be able to meet the deadlines. There's too much work to do. So there's an eternal aspect to this because the work will never be complete. If Cassandra comes in, that, and if she comes in that way out, then not only will we need to pick up her work, but no doubt she'll start taking it out on other team members, which makes it thoroughly a thoroughly unhappy experience. And so there's an internal element to this. It's the thinker's responsibility to sort all this out. The job is impossible. With horrible working conditions, there is no way out. And so you've got that catastrophic element. This is as bad as it could possibly be. So remember, this is the unchallenged thing that we're working through. So the next step is to think about how do we feel. We're wound up, ready for a fight, overwhelmed, tired. And so how do I behave? How does that thinking and feeling affect how I behave? Well, it's Sunday night, but I can't sleep. I find myself playing out conversations with Cassandra in my mind. I'm wor worrying what the boss will do if I don't meet at least one deadline. I'm playing through different scenarios of problems that may come up again in my mind. The more I do this, the more wound up I become. In the end, I have a dreadful night with little sleep. I wake up tired and I'm in no state to go to work and start the week. Nevertheless, I grab some breakfast and head off to work. So that's an unchallenged pattern of thinking. As you can see, the problem ends up exacerbated as I head off to work unnecessarily tired um, with a lack of sleep. So here is what it might look like to challenge the thinking and how that will affect my feeling and behavior once that thing, thinking is challenged. I'll give a few examples and I'll break it down as I go through. So one of the thinkings or ways, ways of thinking is I have a lot of work to do next week. There are a lot of deadlines. And we said this is eternal. It's never going to be complete. So the way to challenge this is to think about it. Well, is it really too much work? Well, I guess if I think of it as a huge mountain of work, it will feel unsurmountable. So what I need to do is break it up into small tasks. When I break things up into small manageable tasks, then I can kind of go into work on Monday and think I'm just aiming to get one task completed. And once I've got one task completed, I'll move on to the next one. But by breaking it up in your mind, thinking actually just there are just a number of manageable tasks, just need to get one under my belt, 
I'll be in the swing of things. We also thought in terms of, I'm not going to get a break until next Sunday, and there's a global sense to this, work is spoiling everything. So we can challenge this. Does work really affect everything? It's not quite true. Most nights I am home by 7pm, which means I have time to enjoy a nice meal. The nights are getting brighter. So not only can I have a nice meal, but I can go for a walk, get a bit of an exercise of an evening. Plus I've been enjoying reading before going to bed. What about Cassandra? Um, and that internal wholly the thinker's responsibility. Well, I remind myself that actually this is not all on me. I am part of a team and that team we're all working together towards those deadlines. Each one of us is playing his or her part. And yes, granted, some are better than others. But actually, Cassandra has recently been responding well to the support she's been receiving recently. She's never going to work at the same pace and rate as everyone else, but she at least isn't being quite so hostile as she has been. And so on. So you continue to kind of think about the different things that are worrying you and actually see that actually they're not as catastrophic or global or internal or eternal or irresistible as you may think. Now as I've done that and talked myself down, well how am I beginning to feel? Start to begin to feel a little bit more relaxed. Start to feel a little bit more confident. Certainly more calm and beginning to think a bit more assured, feel a bit more assured. So how do I behave? Well, in this relaxed state, I'm able to drift off to sleep. Soon after my head is resting on the pillow, which means in the morning I wake rested, ready to head off to work and get stuck into that first task that we talked about. Okay, so there's, a, there's an attempt at sort of breaking these things down and sort of thinking about what it looks like to challenge our wrong thinking. Now at this point, one of the things that you may be thinking is, well, there's nothing particularly Christian about this method. Anyone could do this. Anyone, any unbeliever could do this. And of course you'd be correct. But that doesn't mean that this is a secular method that we are borrowing from a secular society. Rather, the reason this works is because the non-Christian, like us, has been made in God's image. Which means when they apply God's rationale in God's creation, 
then they can encourage themselves not to be anxious. We're not borrowing it from them. Rather, they are borrowing it from us. However, there is a point where we do diverge with the unbeliever. And that's because we have much more available to us. Let's go back to those five wrong ways of thinking that we mentioned at the start that lead us into despair. So the first one we mentioned was when we make everything, when things become catastrophic, our thinking becomes catastrophic. Things are as bad as they could possibly be. Well, think for a moment. How bad can it be for the Christian? And Jesus says in Luke 9 verse 24, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You notice with what Jesus says there, even the very worst case scenario for the Christian, all it does is leads them into an early welcome into the kingdom of God. That's the worst case scenario. What about global? This is affecting everything. Well, as we see in Genesis 3, the fall certainly does have a global impact. But what we also learn as we read through God's redemptive history is that the solution has an equally comprehensive extent. God is making everything new. His solution is global. about three when our thinking becomes eternal this will never end this will never go away once again for the christian there is only one thing one thing alone that is eternal and that is the life that we live as we dwell with god forever so our thinking can make our problems eternal but they're not eternal what's eternal is the life that Jesus has bought for us irresistible this is not open to change well Paul tells us that the suffering of this world is nothing compared to the glory that's to come so change is precisely what we are looking forward to. We're looking forward to as we, as the world groans with us for a time when suffering will end and it will be replaced with glory and our tears will be wiped away. And then we have that internal thought. 
This is wholly the thinker's responsibility. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You see, it's not wholly our responsibility. But the salvation we have is wholly the Father's initiative. That is worked out by the Son and applied by his spirit it's by grace that we're saved and we can be assured that it will happen so whatever else we might need think we need to worry about the only thing we really need to be concerned with and prioritize which brings us back to what we were thinking about last week is that our salvation is assured and certain and sorted and it is, because it's the Father's initiative, achieved by the work of the Son, and applied to us by his Spirit. So as we live in God's world, we can talk ourselves down, because we've been created in his image, and think his thoughts after him. But not only that, we can talk ourselves down because we've been redeemed for God's plan and purpose. And his plan and purpose is to restore creation. And he's gathering up a people that will dwell with him. That plan and purpose is global, it's eternal, it's irresistible, it cannot change. It's God's initiative and we can be assured that it will happen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on your plan and purpose, we ask once again that it would help us put everything else in its context. As we think in terms of Romans 8 and how the suffering of this world is nothing compared to the glory to come, would we remember that that doesn't negate the suffering, it remains real, but rather help us to think about how it helps us to persevere through that suffering, knowing that something much greater is to come. We pray, Lord, that we would have opportunity to encourage one another as a community of your people in the things that we've been reflecting upon. And we pray, Lord, that we might be well practiced in talking ourselves down from our anxiety using both a simple rationale because we bear your image and then um, supporting that with the great truth that we have in your gospel. We pray, Lord, that our priority would be knowing that we are in your kingdom and part of it can look forward to the time when you will vindicate your people in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Well, if you remember, I mentioned at the start that we would be having an opportunity to ask questions or make comments. And how you do that is you can just put a cue 
in the live chat so that will pop up so we can all see that you have a question and the reason we do that is simply so I don't move on before your question has you've had an opportunity to put your question in there and to ask it so the time has now arrived to ask your questions um, I guess a couple of things just to mention so I haven't included a reflection today partly because the sermon was quite a bit longer um, and I think that last thing hopefully um, I thought that was a fitting thing to end on so we haven't got a reflection I think my, my word count went crazy uh, so I thought seeing as it was a bit of a longer sermon we'll uh, not have included reflection we are going to sing though so when we've finished question time we're going to sing so do feel free now to take your opportunities to make any comments or ask any questions you may have so Susie's asked a question it says what do you think David means in Psalm 13 verse 6 when he says because he has dealt bountifully with me I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Yeah, I so I did, as I read through it, did spend a moment thinking about this. So I think... It's interesting because on the one hand you read it and you think, well, there are no clues given. It's just a very sweeping, broad comment. But I guess on the other hand, it is a declaration of God and his mighty works or God and his mighty deeds. Um, I guess the first thing to remember as we're looking at that phrase because he has dealt bountifully with me is that this is not just a generic saying of a person of God or a believer this is the specific response that the Messiah has so this is the Messiah or God's anointed king or God's chosen one or God's Christ just to use the New Testament version of Messiah, but God's anointed king has said, I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. And everything that he says in this psalm has to be understood in that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he's God's king. And so you've got this idea that he has done mighty acts. And, you know, even in the background, you'll have this idea that he has rescued the people of Israel that obviously he's a part of from Egypt but also there's a sense in that God has um, raised him up to be his king and then made the promises of 2 Samuel 7 that his son will reign on the throne So I think it's a declaration of faith and trust. Promises that he's made 
I believe and trust he will keep. Um, the things he's done for me in the past have demonstrated his demonstrated that. Interesting as well, I think it's probably worth mentioning that David's perspective, even prior to him becoming king, is extremely commendable and I think fairly unique. You see it in the David and Goliath episode. So, obviously, you'll be very familiar with the story. You've got Goliath is challenging the Israelites uh, as a representative of the Philistines. He wants one of them to come and fight him. Whoever wins, um, then the other nation will become their servants. And then in verse 14 of, of 1 Samuel 17, it says, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take care, take for your brothers an ephah of his parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to command of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Right, let me uh, skip a bit just to find the bit I'm looking for. Right, so verse 26. So having heard the challenge, David says this. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this to uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. And then, verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion from the poor of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord will be with you. And then finally, verse 45, Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. I give the dead of bodies, the host of the Philistines, this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Now, his theology there, his knowledge of God is remarkable, particularly if you think in terms of how the other people of God, you know, we've just come out of the book of Judges where people did not know the Lord. But David's knowledge of God is remarkable. 
he doesn't see this Philistine as a challenge. He sees that God delivers delivers him from the sheep in the same way I'll deliver him from this person who's defied God. He sees that this is a, an attack against God and it's something that God won't stand for. So he has a very high understanding of who God is and what God is like. So verse 6, there could also be an element in that he says, I'll sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. It could be simply simple as this or inclusive of this. He will protect me from my enemies because I'm his Messiah. I'm his king. And he's protected me before from my enemies. For example, when I stood up before Goliath. Now, that's what David's doing. But we've got a similar position in the sense that we've sided with the Messiah, Jesus. And he will be vindicated and he, we will be vindicated with him. So in that sense, we can say God has dealt bountifully with us. We're expecting and anticipating the new heavens and the new earth. So we can shadow that same statement. God has dealt bountifully with us. He will save us. He will vindicate us. We will be at the Lord's side. I hope that's helpful. I've talked quite a long time, so I will stop there. We've got another question coming from Simon. It says, hi, Tom. It is good to see CBT in the Christian setting and will make a therapist of you yet. <laughs> I would encourage someone to seek professional help depending on the situation to get help. Yes, definitely. So, so here's the thing. I'm not a professional. Um, and really... We're doing this anxiety course, assuming that actually we are coping with anxiety, but we still get anxiety. So what we're doing here at the minute is encouraging one another as people who are functioning well. We're functioning well and we're encouraging one another. And we're thinking a little bit about how to engage with our anxiety. CBT is intended for those who are in despair and are really struggling. If you're in despair and really struggling, then you really need to go and speak to your uh, GP because the other thing as well is that there is a physiological side to this. You know, there's a physiological side that needs fixing and you won't get, you know, you won't be able to, you need that help to apply the, the CBT um, and so you, you need the appropriate uh, medicine as it were so yeah don't think in one sense I'm not giving you all the answers because I am i can't provide that um, solution to the physiological side of things that's where we take advantage full advantage of our NHS GPs and the medicine that again is God's you know there's, there's no drug that takes God by surprise, that he didn't know would be developed. Okay, it's all God's creation, it's all part of him. So yeah, this is um, encouraging those people who are well to cope with their anxiety better. But if you're not well, you are really in the thick of despair, then seek professional help.